Miss Monroe, it's time. On the hand. How'd you get your start? Maybe. What start? In movies. Quite continental. But diamonds are a girl's best friend. I guess I was discovered. Warm hayride welcome. Mr. Elvis Presley. Get a haircut, buttercup. In that moment, I watched that skinny boy transform into a superhero. I'm just saying black people wouldn't be crazy screaming for Elvis the way they portrayed in the film. This is a story about the real Marilyn who had power and who used it, who used her power for good. That movie did not portray. But where's our Ella Fitzgerald biopic? <laughs> it's intriguing that two biopics of the 20th century's most famous and most working class superstars have appeared in 2022 says our guest on today's show, Carnegie Mellon professor Kathy Newman, who wrote about the films Blonde and Elvis on the Working Class Perspectives blog in a piece entitled Marilyn and Elvis, Dead Labor in the Age of Streaming. Here's our lively conversation with Kathy. So we're here to, we're here to talk about Blonde and Elvis. Six hours of my life I'm never getting back. <laughs> I know Elise has some things to say or to ask or to get to unload, but I was rereading your piece on Marilyn and Elvis, Dead Labor in the Age of Streaming. And you started out by talking about Marilyn Monroe in as a cannery worker in Clash by Night, which I realized I've never seen. No, neither have I. So I thought maybe you could <clears throat> start out with telling us about that movie, but then also about the backstory, which is what you open your column with. Yeah, so this is, it's a mix between noir and a romantic melodrama. It stars Barbara Stanwyck as a woman who's been around the block and comes back home and is romanced by this kind of perfectly nice, but maybe not the sharpest tool in the drawer, fisherman paid, played by Paul Douglas. And she's, I'm no good for you. You know, I, this isn't going to work out. And he's like, oh, let's try it. They have a baby. And then after their baby is born, she ends up falling in love with his best friend. So it's a love triangle. But Marilyn Monroe is this kind of like luminescent bright spot in the movie. It's very early in her career, 1952. And she is dating the brother of Barbara Stanwyck's character. And so there's an A couple and a B couple. Barbara and Paul are the A couple. Marilyn and Keith Andes are the B couple. And she played a real cannery worker. According to one of her biographers, she took the all-night bus from L.A. to Monterey and had to hang out on the shop floor of the sardine factory where it's like incredibly stinky. And um, the movie, interestingly, is one of the only movies in the 1950s produced by a woman named Harriet Parsons, who is the daughter of Luella Parsons. And was it was pretty much an open secret that she was that she was queer, that she was a lesbian and in a relationship with a woman at the time that she lived with named Janet. So 
Harriet Parsons was like, Marilyn was such a trooper. We got the shot. And there are these just jaw-dropping photographs of her as a cannery worker that are the publicity photos. And looking at her, it doesn't quite look like her, but that is the most beautiful cannery worker I have ever <laughs> seen. And she's mixed in with all they have shots of the real workers doing the work and almost like a Bugsby Berkeley, like Fritz Lang, the German emigre is the director and he does all these shots from above. And so the sardine cans look almost like they're dancing. It's really a beautiful film. And it's one of the, it's a chapter in the book I'm writing because it's got such a working class focus. And it's only a few years after Steinbeck wrote Cannery Row. This is Cannery Row. So this is that kind of smelly, earthy, but also very industrial part of Northern California, the sardine factories in Monterey. But then you also point out, and I knew this, but I'd forgotten this, that she had done factory work, Marilyn. That was how she was discovered. She was working in a fuselage factory, painting like lacquer onto, I believe it was airplane parts. And she called it the hardest work she'd ever done. And she was photographed by a photographer doing a story on women doing factory work during the war. So like doing their patriotic duty. And so she, she popped, she flew off the canvas of this feature of women in factory. According to, uh, I think it might've been George Lipsitz, but it may have been a different biographer. She was like really good at her job and kind of resented by the other women. Like she was like a gold star worker and people were like, hey, settle down. Don't go so fast. She was like, she was really good at her work. Um, so it is really interesting to think like 1946, she's in this airplane factory. 1952, she's an actress in a sardine factory, but still having to get down in the muck. And Something that I've discovered happens a lot in this period. The Cannery Workers Union does a little ceremony where they make her an honorary member. So there's like a photo shoot and she gets like some swag. Um, butchers did this with Ernest Borgnine. Sewer workers did this with Art Carney, who played the sewer worker on The Honeymooners. Bartenders do it with Jackie Gleason. He had a character that was a bartender. So this is like a way for unions to boost their visibility is to do these ceremonies for stars who play working class characters. But none of this makes it into blonde. Not a whisper makes it into no. blonde. Yeah. Is it like, is it worth talking about what the perspective of blonde is? And I think there are some advances in terms of the Marilyn story there, but no, she, Marilyn is not a working class hero in that story. Or Norma Jean. <laughs> yeah, Norma Jean. Um, they go it, for it. it. It's based on Joyce Carol Oates' fictional biography called Blonde, which is totally gripping. I highly recommend it. I taught, when I first got to Carnegie Mellon 25 years ago, I taught classes on Elvis and Marilyn. So that was my entry point and why I'm so interested in them, invested in them. But the perspective of Blonde is that Marilyn had two kind of almost split personalities. One was Norma Jean, her kind of true self, and that Marilyn was her creation. 
and that over the course of her career, she struggled increasingly to get into her persona. It does depict a lot of really upsetting material, both her mother who suffered from mental illness, certainly her poverty that she grew up in, and then sexual harassment and sexual assault that characterized likely the entirety of her career. So it it is a kind of a trauma story and it shows a kind of psychological break that it suggests that Marilyn had this kind of break between these two aspects of her personality. And the movie has been absolutely savaged for showing Marilyn as a victim rather than I think as the person who, you know, who made Marilyn. I think she authored this character, this superstar and I think was fairly proud of that creation. And that's not really the depiction that we see in the Netflix version of her life. What did the two of you think? Elise? Oh, I totally agree that she was total victim the entire time. And people experience trauma in their life, but they're not always the victim. Yeah. And I don't have any data for this whatsoever, except for my own experience in women's groups and that met women who were sexually assaulted in their youth and the ones who had reeking sexual vibes who just men were just automatically attracted to them knew they had that power yeah and it wasn't like oh gosh golly you mean you really like me they knew they liked them yeah. and most of them could use that ability to manipulate and get what they wanted that's never presented in this film it's always that she's oh gosh god you really like me now and where did she get that persona from for that little abused neglected orphan child to sex pictures that's where we go we go we jump from her childhood to here she is on the spread of uh, girly magazines and i thought you know there's something happened in between there that you're missing yeah i think that is such a good point that it doesn't show her as the owner of this power, but it's almost like it's just some sort of magical ability that, that seems to come from nowhere. Yes. And I, I also know women who are considered incredibly attractive. And often when people will like start gushing on them, they'll go, no, back off. I'm not all that. I'm not that all the time, or please step back from it. And that never happens. And so I have this, I have a theory about the director. <laughs> oh, come on. I want, let's go for it. This is yes. the place for us. Let's, yes. let's hear it. Lay it out. I think this was his sex fantasy. And the moment to me that, that summed it up beautifully is that this was his preoccupation, was a scene of her and the dress and the grate, the famous photograph of her with her skirts floating around her as the air is coming up from the subway. And I, I don't know how much time he spent on it, but it was, seems like me an inordinate amount of time with multiple sh- behind a, behind your crotch and then above and then this big giant Marilyn. And I thought, are you crazy? We know this is that we know this photo is that photo. We know that this is that moment in her career. Yeah, I don't don't remember how many angles he shot it from, but I just remember it was like multiple and way more time spent on it than needed to be with the rest of the story to go on. Yeah, I think that's a really kind of good analysis of that scene. And we're supposed to be thinking about Joe DiMaggio, who's watching this and getting very angry and jealous. And the one thing that the movie does show is that she is superior to all of her husbands and lovers. She's a, she's more famous and more popular. And it did show her kind of besting Arthur Miller. And like she explains the character that she's playing right. in that play. 
-hmm. in a way that he never fully understood it. That's the one moment where they show that she has some intelligence. It's the one moment. But the rest of the film is not there. But then I'm going to go, oh, yeah, she really isn't thinking and informed. And I guess literate person. I read this, and maybe it was in your article or somebody's article, that she was well read. No, and more than that, and Kathleen, maybe you could talk a little bit about this because I'm doing some research. I didn't realize Marilyn had set up a production company, which I don't think was something that was common at the time. But to go to both of your points about agency, which is not in the film, I- I'll be honest, I-, I I don't think I knew a whole lot more than just the general Marilyn stuff. I will say one good thing about watching this film was it did send me down a bit of a, a rabbit hole trying to find out more. But can you talk a little bit about that? Because I had no idea that she had done that. It's actually a little bit more common because this is a time of really the transformation from what is considered the studio system to the more independent system where stars don't necessarily sign contracts to particular studios. They're not owned by the studios in the same way. This Burt Lancaster actually starts his own production company in this period. It's called HL because he started it with, I think it's with Harold Heck and then another H person who I'm forgetting. And there was some other stars that set up their own company. So this was a way for stars to control their own destiny and to own their own their image more essentially and to not have that ownership be transferred to the film production companies in the same way. So I do think that Marilyn never fully neither Marilyn nor Elvis were able to control the production and circulation of their own image. Mm-hmm. Other people got richer off of them than they did richer and more powerful. But I think Marilyn is no dummy and is very much invested in trying to figure out how to control. She has the power, but how can she actually harness that power for her own sort of profit and comfortable future? What is a fictional biography? Just call it fiction. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of what I always tell my undergraduate students about Hamilton, that now... All elementary school children are going to think our founding fathers were like the like the most attractive multiracial crew of all time. Wait a minute, um, they weren't really. By the way, Elise just went to see it last night. So I saw it last night. Oh, did you enjoy it? That's exactly what I walked away with. Yeah, yeah. Are you kidding? I know it. It humanizes them beyond what they deserve. Way beyond. <laughs> but I think that. I think the question for me, and this is actually something I've been reflecting on a little bit self-critically, if you are writing a historically fictional biography of Marilyn Monroe, you're doing it partly because somebody's going to go into a bookstore and buy it because we are obsessed. We are still obsessed with these two superstars. And But I want to defend the practice maybe partially because I do think that there's a way that you get a fuller, even imaginary picture of what her life might've been like, because in some ways she was so surrounded by handlers, producers, helpers, and didn't live long enough to tell her own story. Mm -hmm. I think there's Mm -hmm. a way that Oates is trying to honor and give a fuller humanity to her. I think the director took that 
story in a slightly different direction. And I think the way that I've been realizing this is that when I was teaching classes on Maryland and Elvis, I actually get paid in summer school by the student. So I was using them in some ways for the same reason to get more students into my class. So it, there, there's a complicity here. And I think with the director, you can, you really, it's, he's an easy target because his complicity really feels rapey. There's only shots of, their, of her bare breasts squatting on the floor like a little child. How many times did he use that shot? Yeah. Yeah. Like rude. So I think I think that anybody who takes on one of these figures is doing it to get attention for themselves. Yeah. yeah. All right. We got to talk about Elvis. I saw Blonde first and I thought, okay, we'll do it. And, and I will say, not my favorite director because he's just always over the top more often than not doesn't work for me. But Elvis seems like that could work. I think you're making a similar argument about the exploitation, maybe your take on Elvis. I will confess Baz Luhrmann is my favorite director because <laughs> he's so over the top. I'm just, his. the first film I saw of his was Strictly Ballroom. Love it's it. Been, I love that. That One that of one my all-time yes, movies yes. of all time, but favorite movies. But here again, and I think the actors who are playing each of these icons are really important. So Austin Butler does not look like Elvis, but the energy and the effort and really the labor he put into, I think, reproducing a certain element of Elvis's sex appeal. I just think his performance is extraordinary capturing that and that Baz Luhrmann kind of falls in love with Austin Butler and then presents that version of Austin Butler's Elvis to us. Yes. So again, I think Baz Luhrmann is looking for attention and he's getting it. And a similar scene, actually, Elise, that you pointed out with the dress is the scene where they have Elvis performing Trouble, which he actually sang in King Crawford that was written for him for that movie, which is set in New Orleans or King. I might have the title wrong, but it's a, it's a Louisiana, New Orleans set movie, but he never sang it in a performance or certainly not at that point, like 1958, whatever year that is. But there are 1500 individual shots of that performance in the movie from all these different angles. Austin Butler's like crazy ability to get up on his toes the way that Elvis did and the reaction of the crowd and the reaction of the police. And the suggestion of the film is that that performance was so sexual and so over the top that they had to send him to the military to like basically cool down the libidos of the American <laughs> right. 14-year-old girl. But the time stamp is all wrong because right. from that performance to the military, it's two years. But it was another one of those moments. It's a very long movie. And that scene has shot after shot from angle after angle. But I have probably watched that scene like 40 times because it's just an amazing scene. And Austin Butler is just irresistible, I think, in it. Here's the thing that disturbs me, I'm sorry, because this is what bothered me, is the portrayal of black people in that film. Every black singer is like this. They have their mouth is wide open. The camera mm -hmm. is shooting from above their head. And that's all you can see is their mouth and their teeth or their missing teeth. And it's just really, 
<laughs> Come on, y'all. Give me, give me a break here. Give me a break here. I, yeah, he grew up poor and he grew up in the African-American community, but no. I have to tell you, Kathleen, we watched Elvis together. I felt very white. It was funny because we didn't actually talk about it during the film. Oh, no. We were good. <laughs> but, no, but I'm just saying we both had that reaction very uncomfortable with that and i was curious about because elise went off that was the first thing you, you talked about after the well, film there's this whole thing that we grew up knowing about elvis and we knew that elvis was alleged to have taken some of his movements or whatever from the african-american you know or songs that was definitely the you ain't nothing well, the songs 100 percent, yeah that was no, but that was it. That was it. There was really no other. And like black people chasing him with autograph books. I was like, oh no. I actually no. think that might've been based in reality because I doubt it. here was one we of my- We didn't do that. We didn't, was, do, we didn't do that with was, the Temptations. We didn't do that with the Supremes. Black people did not behave in the same way. And I'm also not sure about this, but I've been told that at least somewhere with Frank Sinatra, that women were planted to do the screaming thing. Because you will not see a concert of black people in the 50s or 60s, or any of our favorite groups, with black girls going, Who's oh, the Temptations? Always oh, Marvin Gaye. You won't see it. Because it's culturally not happening, it didn't happen in our community. So I even wondered about this whole thing about the whole this is falling out and he was so sexual and yada yada. Did they plan it? Did they plant that? Or was it so sexually repressed? So that they had one opportunity to express their sexuality and they did it with Elvis. I but that just isn't. So there, there are a bunch of headlines that Lerman scans, and those are 100% accurate. So Elvis was considered a sexual threat. That yeah, I, no, I believe that. I yeah. believe that. I don't doubt that. But the, so the, I am hearing what you're saying about like almost the over minstrelization of the black characters in the yes. film. Well, but my point. entry like point to knowing about Elvis and getting curious about him was research I did on the radio station WDIA in Memphis. Mm -hmm which is the first all-Black radio station in the country. And it's where B.B. King gets his start as mm -hmm. a disc jockey. King basically walks into the station. He's 16 years old. He's holding a guitar. And he starts to play. And they're like, yes, let's let's figure out how to get you, how to get you involved in this industry. And one of his first jobs was to sing commercials for like, Pepsi thing very like pedestrian so like a and Elvis there's a lot of photographs of him performing at WDIA's annual fundraiser and they're in the archives there of the radio station so it I don't think there's like the fraternity like I, I don't get the sense of an intimacy but there was like maybe an ease and comfortability that's what I took from my research on this radio station is that Elvis was in this community and was not considered an alien in this community, that he was brought into Why these fundraisers. Privilege. Why people had that privilege. You don't, you wouldn't find the reverse at that time. You wouldn't see B.B. King at some white station and being accepted. No, black people were like, yeah, sure. You want to, oh yeah, come on. You go to a black church. Why people would say to me, oh, I'm so afraid to go to a black church. Why wouldn't you go to a black church? Their Jesus is white. Their God is white. And when white people come in our church, everybody would be like, look, it's a white person. Come on in, sister. Come on in, brother. We are very welcoming and engaging in the way yeah. white people were not. So yeah, he'd have been right in. They'd have been like, yeah, brother, come on in. Sing a song with us. Okay, cool beans. But the fact that he was a featured guest in the fundraiser, it just 
led me to believe that he was an attraction within that community. Sure, go ahead. Well, I think also that- I, I'm not saying he's not, I'm not saying he's not, I'm saying he would right. be accepted. He would be accepted. Yeah, yeah. They I would. Think... He would be accepted in a way that black people were not accepted in the white community. We have done this and white people have stolen our music for generations since we came in this country. Minstrel shows were the most popular form of entertainment right up until the 1950s. Touring companies of white people in blackface. That's nothing new. So going back to Hamilton in, the, in this generation does the same thing. Takes black culture, black hip hop, black rap music and turns it into the story of white America stealing from the Native Americans in this land and creating another country. That's what we get from that. So I'm just... Yeah, Elvis, yes, Elvis would have been accepted. I don't doubt that. I'm just saying black people wouldn't be crazy screaming for Elvis the way they portrayed in the film. That's, and I don't, this is the director's choice. It's fictional. It's not a documentary. So the director gets to make a choice, and I understand. He made a choice to minstrelize black folks. He made a choice to make it seem like we just as crazy for Elvis as the white folks were. And I don't believe that's true. Appreciative? Yeah, you come and jam with us, but... Thinking you like all that in a bag of t- no, no. <laughs> but, but I think it goes no. I think it goes back to my d- discomfort with this form, this fictional biography form, and then your reaction is exactly what I'm talking about. It's why I used to throw some of these books across the room because I get what you're saying, Kathleen, about it that the form allows you to explore some things that see some value to it. But Elise's reaction and my sort of gut reaction to things that you either know are not true or feel are not true, or more often the case for me, wonder. And I'm like, I am not going to go run down. If I'd have kept a list of all the shit in in both of these movies that I wondered about if it was true or not, I'd have to spend months researching. And I don't care that much, but it annoys me that I watch these two pieces of art that are some sort of biographical thing that I swear to God, a lot of Americans are going to think that this is, that that these are things that happened. And that, that disturbs me. And it also just me as a consumer, I don't like that I watch these things and I, I don't know what's true and what's not. And in this day and age, the question of what's true and what's not is not a passing issue. Um, And I think the other thing that Elise is reacting to, and I felt the same way, is that you can talk about whether the particular thing that, you know, in terms of how this, whether this happened or not, but the fact that in 2022, you have a minstrelization, you know, that, that seems really, I don't agree that, I don't feel like that's a choice that should be acceptable in 2022. The way that that uh, you called it rapey, the rapey approach to Marilyn in Blonde and the minstrelization in Elvis in 2022, those boats, I don't think they're okay. I'll just, yeah. throw, I'll just throw that out there, but I'd, I'd like to get you guys' reaction to that. This connects to another controversial part of the film, which it showed Elvis to be pro-civil rights, which I, I'm under the impression that that is correct. But we, what you are making me think is like, where's our biopic of B.B. King, who is truly one of the great R&B stars of, of all time and had an incredible rags to riches story and performed right up until he died, basically. So what would the Elvis story look like from the position from Beale Street as opposed to from Baz Luhrmann? What about a biopic of W.D.I.A.? 
like truly exceptional performers, educators, singers. There have been a half a dozen books written about the station. I got interested in the station because I was thinking that one of the ways that civil rights economic boycott came into play, African-Americans were really excluded and segregated out of the consumer market during the 50s. But the one medium that really tried to recruit African-Americans was radio. And so that that was interesting to me to think about the economic tactic of the boycott combined with segregation and discrimination in retail in particular. And so I was fascinated by, there's a lot of rising articles from the period that basically say, if you aren't advertising to African-Americans, you're an idiot because it's a huge market with a lot of money that, that wants to buy things. And so one of the places that happened was radio. And WDIA really pioneered targeted marketing to African-Americans and had a huge reach. Like you could hear that radio station all over the South. So that was how this was a research paper that I did in my second year of graduate school. But I think that from a cultural production point of view, we need more Black filmmakers, more Black stories that are being told in this way. Yeah, I agree. I think that I would add to that is that we, we often fo fo focus on the cultural, but I just more black <laughs> biopics. Thurgood Marshall's story, Ella Baker's story, W.B. Du Bois. Eartha Kitt. You know, it's all kinds of, uh, of stories to be told. But here's the thing, who are they marketing to? Because this is what I got to with, with Hamilton last night. I looked around the theater and the majority of the people were under the age of 40. Right now, usually you go to the theater and it's me, it's the baby boomers, it's us. It's like we got the wheelchairs and the walkers and the whole nine not yards filling up the theater. This show, however, has got mostly young folks. And, be, and when it when the lights go down and the stage lights come up, they're yeah, they're right into it and they're singing along. And when the star turns happen in the show, they're applauding wildly. And I just thought. Oh, Lin-Man, you clever devil. You took the hip hop music of this generation and turned it into a Broadway musical. And musicals had their own magic, right? I'm, I was never a musical fan. I, we just didn't watch musicals. But the first time I saw The Wiz, and this, this is the black version of The Wizard of Oz, and in the audience, when the lion, cowardly lion came out and everybody just went, oh, I went, musicals fell. Musical sell to young people. And so you create the next generation of theater goers because they're gonna go, I, was, I saw Hamilton and I just loved it. And I thought, yeah, Lynn, you did it. And you did it using black folks. And they did it with this old colorblind casting. Isn't that wonderful? Bullshit, they were slave owners. <laughs> Come on. And he wouldn't, he just wouldn't have it. So I, that's what I thought. I thought, oh, how clever. And, it, and you can do it with Elvis and you can do it with Marilyn and you can take them once again and put them out there and exploit them one more time because everybody wants to be knowing about sexualized white people. Yeah, I think this is an incredibly fair point. And interestingly, Marilyn, I think was a more genuine progressive and a heart really fought civil rights, maybe, you know, more with more intentionality than Elvis. And there's a famous story, and you might know it, about her supporting Ella Fitzgerald. And I I, I, if I could just tell this very quickly, um, there, 
Fitzgerald wasn't allowed to play at the Moncombo and other places in Hollywood because of her race. And Fitzgerald says in one of her memoirs that Marilyn went to the owner of Macombo and said, if you book Ella Fitzgerald, I will sit at a front table every night. And wow. she did that. Wow. So it, at least to your point, this is a story about the real Marilyn who had power and who used it, who used her power for good. That movie did not portray but where's our Ella Fitzgerald biopic? I'm nope. just thinking, they did Tina Turner before they did Aretha Franklin. And I love Tina Turner. It was all about the legs and the booty shaking. <laughs> Mahalia Jackson. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Transformative performers. Yeah. Absolutely. Who changed American music and changed American culture. Duke Ellington. So is it, and we need to start to wrap up here, but is it clearly, you guys have just reeled off like 10, 12 films that I would totally see. By the way, I would also totally see Blonde and Elvis remade in the way that you guys have taught people. Those are the stories that I want to see, right? Yeah. See these folks. And I think that they can, they can still be true to all the complicated parts of them. But, and I think this goes to our perspective as labor folks is these folks actually had other the whole thing with elvis as a truck driver know a bunch of stuff about that that was a big part of his formation not except for the one iconic throwaway shot it's not there the teamsters would make him an honorary member by the way it's clearly not a problem of a lack of stories so then is it a mark failure of marketing is it that there are I've, i see the stats every year on the number of women directors is it just that we don't have the people in power to green light stuff what's the issue here because these netflix has got billions of dollars apparently to throw pretty much anybody wants to make a movie right i think that in this moment of streaming platform competition we've seen a slight bump in diversity yeah. One of the things I just wrote about this for Labor and Working Class History Association, there have been an explosion of Black written and starred in comedies. Now that the streaming platform competition is maybe shaking out a little bit, some of those shows have been canceled, literally canceled, not figuratively canceled. <laughs> be clear now, gotta be clear. <laughs> but I think that Hollywood keeps forgetting that when you make good pictures about these kind of, about really super entertaining and important and political minority figures, they actually do commercially and Hollywood just can't keep that lesson in their head. And I just saw a headline that said Me Too, the Me Too movement and the murder of George Floyd did jolt the industry to some extent, but that we're already seeing the backlash and the back backing away from those achievements and those advancements. I think it takes <coughs> independent Black producers and Black directors to say, let's tell these stories. And when we tell them, when we have Wakanda, when we have the woman king, we're going to get butts and seats. People want to see these stories. Whew, that is it for today's show, Elise. And I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Professor Kathy Newman about Marilyn and Elvis, dead labor in the age of streaming. Hey, if you've got a suggestion for a film about working folks that we should take a look at and discuss, just shoot us a note or comment at laborgoestothemovies at gmail.com. Who knows? We might even invite you to join the conversation. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. 
We are the same, you and I. We are two odd, lonely children reaching for eternity. The greatest show on earth. Elvis has left the building.